Alright, let's go. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. It's June 2021 and the cinemas are open. The mood is one of cautious optimism, but the world is still a little strange. We're still here to get you through it with your regular fix of cinematic content. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for having me. Fresh off the bat of wanting to bat at Italians and hating Nicola Sturgeon, I'm back and ready for some more film content. Each month, we aim to bring you a range of features from the film world, split into two reels for those of you who like to take an intermission between installments of film content. If you want to comment on the podcast with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at filmanorak 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which will take you to our profile. There's also an Instagram called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Here's what's coming up in episode 14. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, a look at how we're living up to our film-related resolutions for 2021, and a look at any notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month, we're looking at an iconic police thriller from the 1970s that I haven't seen before, William Friedkin's French Connection. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Dread, the Alex Garland scripted reboot of the cult Judge Dread comics. Then we turn to the one that got away, and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 14, we're discussing Mad Max creator George Miller and his film version of The Justice League, which was cancelled at the last minute. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month is a double bill of hateful Robin Hood films. Ridley Scott's 2010 version with Russell Crowe, and the disastrous 2018 version starring Taron Egerton. After a brief intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 14, we're looking at representation in Hollywood, including colorblind casting, and the debates on who should be cast as minority characters in films. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the Podcast Magazine Letters page. Cypher, who's written in before, has been catching up on some previous episodes and writes, I was very concerned at your feature discussing Fight Club. As everyone knows, that's in breach of both the first and second rules of that organization. Thank you, Simon. <laughs> good point. Some people responded to my socials post on the uh, first film I saw back at the cinema, Those Who Wish Me Dead. Dion said, our local reviewer down here in Australia gave it one star. I'll be interested in what you thought. Well, you'll find out soon. Mark says, I saw it too. Plot was wafer thin, but it was just so nice to see a film on the big screen again. I had a good time with it. We've also had some responses on our planned features this month. On the remake Hate Watch of Robin Hood, Nick says, I like the Ridley Scott one, but the one with Taron was absolute garbage. Graham says, can we have something new, please? Which is pretty much the motto of this feature. Thanks, Graham. Alejandro says, I like the 2018 version a lot. I guess I'm in the minority. Yes, you are, Alejandro. Yes, you are. A few comments on the French Connection, our classic this month. Vincent says it's a fantastic thriller. Jake says I love the car chase. But Brian says, I watched this for the first time recently. It's a bit slow by modern standards, but the car chase still holds up. And on the Justice League one that got away, Alex says, part of me says, damn, I wish this had happened, but the casting makes me think, no, we'll get into that soon. Lots of love for Dread, I was happy to see. Louise says, amazing film, I watched this at least five times a year. Eddie, Hank and Brad agree. Although a few people actually said they prefer the Stallone version from the 90s, believe it or not. What? 
uh, honest, I'm not going to name them because it might have been, you know, I didn't want to uh, expose you know. them. No, <laughs> <laughs> name and shame. <laughs> Finally, it was great to see lots of love for this month's John Carpenter feature in the mouth of madness. Bob Diner and Ivan all say, I love it. Georgia calls it a classic and Robin Matthias agree, which is great with a movie like this. It's nice to know you're not alone in liking it. That's all for listener messages this month. Thanks for sending them in. Uh, now on with the rest of the podcast. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of the year, we made some film-related New Year's resolutions for 2021, and we'll be checking in on whether we've managed to keep them up. So, James, any any news that's caught your eye lately? No, it's been quite a quiet film for films, and I've, if there was any news, I've not been paying that much attention to it. Um, yeah, and, and for the benefit of the audience, for scheduling reasons, we are recording this slightly earlier before the, the release date than uh, than we normally do. So, you know, a couple of big news stories might break between now and the 18th, which we can't do anything about. But it, it's a monthly magazine podcast. You don't get your most current news from here. Should, um, we, try and pre- should we try and predict the news headlines for the, the, the next two weeks before we usually release and, you know, record it? Should we try and predict what's going to happen? We could try and predict some news stories. Um who should who 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 will or should get cancelled in the next uh, in the next three weeks? Um, my mate Rory is adamant that Mister Tumble should be cancelled. <laughs> Don't know if he counts as a film star, but he just does not get on board with him. Well, he all. does do the voice of Shaun the Sheep in the Shaun the Sheep movie, so that it just about counts as a film story. Okay, all right. So, so our prediction of a news story that we're going to miss because of our <laughs> publication deadline is a sex scandal involving the guy who plays Mister Tumble. Oh, he's he works with disabled children. That's so sinister. That's Nuts. the only thing worse than a, than a Tom Hanks story emerging, isn't it? Oh yeah, the, he's part of some cult and he's obsessed with uh, one finding missing gloves because he loves touching kids because that famous old paedophile behaviour is that the, the right way to describe it? The is that that, sort of, is that that QAnon conspiracy theory about Tom Hanks? Oh, I know that he's a nonce because he takes photos of one glove and one of the gloves was taken close to this thing. You know. Fucking! Hell. I really, I really hope morons out there. I really hope he's not announced because he's he's been in several kids' films and one of his characters is called Woody. Yeah, I know. We can't really have that. Um, so, in t- in terms of actual news that's happened in the past month, I think just before or just after we released our last episode, uh, Charles Grodin slightly died. He was well into his eighties. I think it was natural causes. Um, yeah, Charles Grodin was a, a comedy star who who really hit it big in the seventies. Uh, the film of his that I love the most is Midnight Run, which we discussed previously, especially when Yafet Kotto passed. He's also known, possibly to younger viewers like yourself, James, as the, the the dad in the Beethoven films about the big St. Bernard. Yeah, I didn't watch that shit. Sorry. Rest in <laughs> peace, but those films are shit. Midnight Run is worth watching, and I think Beethoven was just his pension payment, so I don't hold it yeah, against I mean, it. I, I yeah, I do that. Remember Air Bud and MVP? Remember those films? Airbud oh. was the golden retriever that could play volleyball and basketball, and then MVP was when they got a fucking primate, a chimpanzee, to play ice hockey. Do you know how dangerous that is? Chimpanzees are lethal, you know, yeah. biological if, 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 Even for weapons. ice hockey. Yeah, chimpanzees are a bit antisocial even for ice hockey. And then you give them a bladed shoe and a fucking stick. They could, that yeah. thing could conquer the fucking world. That, imagine someone needs to do a mashup of Most Valuable Primate and how he becomes Caesar. From Dawn of the Planet oh, of the Apes. Oh, right, right. Oh, sl- sl- basically a cross between Slapshot and Rise of the Planet of the Apes. 
<laughs> Gretzky yeah, I'd watch, is. I'd watch home. that. <laughs> That'd be amazing. I want to see that film. It's probably going to be Gretzky proper. has to fucking play a chimpanzee. It, it's all funny. You'd have to go lucky until he actually rips someone's face off. <laughs> <laughs> so. So we've done quite well so far for new stories we imagine might happen and films we imagine might come out. Let's turn to films that are actually out now or out soon. Uh, in terms of cinema releases and sort of other big platform releases this month, the things that caught my eye, uh, Cruella is out, that prequel about how Cruella that DeVille came about. Shit, doesn't it's it? It's not for me. Not for me. I'm not, I'm just not, not interested in that backstory. They're obviously trying to get, you know, get lightning to strike twice after the whole Maleficent thing. But that um, was shit. Place, yeah, Sorry, well, that was shit. Yeah. But Quiet Place Part 2 uh, is also out, which I quite fancy because I like the first one, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, the Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It is out already here in the UK, but it's going to have a bit wide release in the US in June for our uh, US uh, uh, listeners. Um, it's also showing on HBO Max for like a month. I remember you mentioned, James, earlier in the year that like um, Warner's has got quite an interesting release uh, strategy for this year, which means they're going to have cinema and HBO Max side by side. What's interesting is you're going to have a month to see it in HBO Max side by side with the cinema release, and then and then it goes off HBO Max, and then you have to wait for it like all the other films that have been out. So that was an interest. I mean, I'm not interested in the film, but I thought it was a good example of what Warner's strategy is with streaming and cinema. Uh, there's a new Stallone film out called Samaritan. I don't really know much about it, but it'll probably be sort of aging action type thing. Um, in the Heights is out this month, which I'm genuinely interested in seeing. Yeah, yeah, Lin Manuel Miranda's original kind of um, after his Hamilton. No, before Hamilton, he recorded yeah, it was the first, it, was an early, it was the musical he did before Hamilton. It's set in Washington Heights, sort of you know multicultural, but you know especially Puerto Rican. Uh, sort of characters in that sort of, sort of northwest part of uh, of New York City. Um, it is. Uh, it, it didn't win as many awards as Hamilton, but it was a very you know it, it won quite a few Tonys and everything when it was out. And uh, he is uh, Lin Manuel Miranda's not in it, not directing it, but he wrote a new song for the musical, and he's a producer on the film. He's got so a cameo. From the Heights, has he got a cameo? Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah, that, that's but, what he plays. He plays a food stand guy, and you do see it in the oh, trailer. I think they've done that to oh, beat it good. because it is Lin Manuel yeah, Miranda. Yeah. But it, it does mean that if, if In the Heights wins Best Picture, he he will actually then complete the EGOT um, okay. sort of uh, thing where you win an, uh, an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony because he's got all the others and he just, he's just waiting for his Oscar now. It's a very exclusive club, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. Some unusual people. Mel Brooks has got one. Uh, Whoopi okay. Goldberg's got one. But it's, it's a very sort of small group of people. And there's a couple of people who've got ones that don't really count because their Oscar was honorary. So it only really counts if you won in a, in a real category. But yeah, there's I, not many people who've got it. I know we've moved on for it, but you know how we had the crossover of Wayne Gretzky playing the MVP and then playing yeah. Caesar? The crossover you didn't know you needed is our aforementioned potential scandal of the month. Mr. Tumble speaks sign language and therefore should be in a quiet place, part three. Oh, very good. And then it's just how with, 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 like, with, with or without any sex scandal, that would be an excellent cameo for the next Yeah, uh, uh, Yeah, but Im- imagine him trying to, like, he, like, sacrifices himself in, like, a gory moment of glory where he sacrifices himself and the only way he makes his noise is he just honks his big red nose and goes, <laughs> and the aliens just fucking pounce on him and tear him to fucking bits and there's just spotted cloud outfit going everywhere and all the kids are fucking horrified. Or he turns oh. to the camera and goes, do you see what's happening, kids? My guts are hanging out. <laughs> and he does the little side language to show you what that means. Can you do my guts are hanging out? And then you got to cut to all the kids doing the um, <laughs> doing the sign language for it. 
My arse is in my elbow. I'm fucked. <laughs> uh, yes. Sorry, that took a tangent, but I just remembered what, but you, you no, got no, such yeah. a good flow in the haters. I didn't want to. <laughs> to yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that would be a good mashup as well. So we, we've been making our pitch for a quiet place part three. If you're listening, Mr. Krasinski, we're happy to join you in the script <laughs> ideas yeah. for, uh, for your next sequel. I want half. <laughs> I want half, Mr. Krasinski. <laughs> so other than that, the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard is out, which is a sequel to the Hitman's Bodyguard. Have you quite seen enjoyed that? the first one. Yeah, I, I saw the first that. one. Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. I mean, you never know if there's going to be any mileage in the sequel to something like that. I mean, do you remember a film called Red with Bruce Willis and Helen Mirren and all of that? Yeah, we went to see the cinema and it was all right. And then I just couldn't really be asked for the sequel. Yeah, I didn't think there was any. I, I remember I started watching the sequel a couple of months ago and I just went, nah. Meh. It was all done in the first film. As, as soon as this, the next film was on, you just went, nah, I, I can't see another film in this. And, you know, look, maybe they've got some mileage in it for this one. It, there might be more to it. We'll see. Um, Luca is out, the new Pixar film, although apparently that's only out on Disney Plus. They're not showing it um, theatrically is at it? all, even though they have the opportunity to. I could be wrong on that because I, I'll be honest, the, the the information I'm getting at the moment on what films are out and how they're out isn't always 100% consistent, but I think Luca is only out on Disney Plus. I'll have a little look now. I'll have a wee check. Will yeah. We? Well, while you while you check, I'll just finish off some of the other films that are, that are out. Um, Peter Rabbit 2 is already out here in the UK, but is about to come out in the US. Oh, so all of our American listeners can pray for another lockdown to reduce the chances of being <laughs> seeing it by accident. Like walking into the wrong screen. You don't want that to happen. Um, Fast and Furious 9 is out oh, this month. fuck off. Um, it, some people are saying it's going to be early July, and some people are saying it's going to be late June. I mean, I, I don't think anyone's 100% certain. It seems to be marketed as F9, which is the function key no one uses on a keyboard. and don't know why they've called it that. Um, and there's another one I saw, um, Infinite, which has a tentative release date of June 2021. It's got Mark Wahlberg of Mark and Mark fame. Mac. It's a sci-fi film about a man whose dreams are actually memories of past lives. That's the kind of summary of a film which I think could either be brilliant or could, or could be crap. Uh, wait and see, really. What's it called? Luca. L U C A, the new Pixar film. It's about a. a, a, a it's on Disney Plus, eighteenth of June. Yeah. And then it doesn't not... look like it's coming out in the cinema. Oh, who's in it? It's a. It's. I'm not sure. Oh, Jacob Tremblay from Room. That's the only. And Maya Rudolph. And I don't know right. any other name from that. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no! Yeah, look, well, well, you know, it's interesting that Disney has taken that approach with Luca. I guess what they're saying is a lot, you know, like they, they must have found a decent audience on on Disney Plus for their for their kids' films. But you would have thought they would have taken a chance on a uh, on a cinema release. It's all still very early days for releasing films in the cinema, so uh, so that's where we are. Any other new films that caught your eye, mate? Uh, no, but you know what I'm like for watching films. So I watched the films that we had to watch, and but I've, I'm convinced I've got. ADHD or something because you told me to watch the French Connection and I started watching the French Connection and I, I didn't hate it but the problem is is that I saw that Atlantis was on Disney Plus so I watched that instead and then watched French Connection do you remember that film <laughs> do you remember that film I, I liked Atlantis I, I spent it, a lot of money on it though they didn't do very well at the box office. It made um, 186 million from a 120 million budget, but they fucked it with the advertising. So yeah, yeah, the marketing and everything. And, and at that 186, anything that they make in global markets, they don't get all of that money back. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that would have it would have lost them money. And then it's they made, I watched the we were talking, 
I'm sorry, did you know no. there was a second one, Milo's Return? Because the plan was... Vaguely, yeah. That film's... The, the first one came out in 2001, and then Milo's Return came out in 2003. And it's mm-hmm. shit. I watched it. It's shit. It started, yeah. But I stopped watching, and then I looked up, and then Odin was in it. And I went, well, hang on, he's a Norse god. So I was a bit confused by that. Yeah, yeah. But the plan was to put it to TV, but because the first one made no money, this film was just kind of released straight to video, and then they just grabbed the TV series. Which is they, a used shame, really that, they used it. to do that a lot with um, Disney, didn't they? They would make a, a film that was meant to be like a frontline cinema release, and then a quick quick and dirty sequel that they would stick straight to video. Oh, like those fucking Barbie films or the Tinkerbell. I don't know if yeah, they're done yeah, by Disney, yeah. but the Tinkerbell fairy films, they would go straight onto Nickelodeon, but they still, somehow they'd still make money because people were still subscribing to yeah, yeah. the channels on Sky. But, or yeah, whatever, I mean, I think, I think I think they did like a straight to video follow-up to The Lion King, or certainly some of those things had quick straight to video releases that, that they don't count as proper Disney animation films. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I thought it was interesting we were talking about the live-action Disney remakes that, that we didn't like. Somebody on the social said, I'd actually like to see them do a live-action remake of Atlantis. I'd, I'd be on board for that. I thought it was pretty good. It's a really good idea. Uh, they yeah. went through th- That kind of period of Disney, they went through really interesting ideas that didn't always land, but they were always quite good. Yeah, um, I, I but- tell you, I'll tell you what. We, we were talking, I was talking about a couple of things. I think it was the, the Captain Nemo film with David Fincher that didn't uh, didn't get made, a couple of other things. That kind of futuristic but old world, you know, steampunk or diesel punk kind of thing where it's set in the like late 19th or early 20th century, and it, but it's futuristic because of some of the technology involved or the world that they find. Yeah, No one ever goes to see it. Every single one of those films yeah. is done badly at the box office. It's a shame because I love does, it. But- it always does badly. Same with... Um- they made an Assassin's Creed game, Syndicate, and that was very steampunk. Um, mm-hmm. And it's one of the least least liked Assassin's Creed games. I quite like yeah, it. Yeah, people, people just but... don't go for it. You, you know what I mean? It's one of those things that no matter how much, you, how much you might like it, unless you can find another 20 or 30 million people to like it as well, it's not happening, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the news, that, you know, those are the films that are out, those are the things that are happening. Um, in terms of this month, mate, how did you get on in terms of watching films and your, you know, your resolution to watch more, you know, watch more films instead of just TV shows? Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll get my Netflix and that open, see what it tells me to watch again or continue watching like the last two minutes of. So, Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Atlantis, Milo's Return. Um, <laughs> watched Hamilton again, just because it was something to do. Yeah. Um, there will be a full cinematic adaptation of that one day, I'm sure. Fuck, I watched, I watched something pretty recently. That awful film with um, Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis, Friends with Benefits. That oh, yeah. shit. Yeah, that, um, just in one ear and out of the other, that film. And then Hercules, um, a lot more TV shows. Oh, I watched a, the, most of The Trial of the Chicago 7, which was quite good. I quite, it's yeah, really well it's written. Good, it? It's by that Aaron Sorkin, who uh, yeah. is a very good writer. Um, yeah, yeah. It's mostly TV shows. I tried to watch that Marco Polo on Netflix. Shit. Tried to watch yeah. uh, Manhunter and a Bomber. Just couldn't get through it. But that's that's my Netflix. Um it's hard to tell what I've watched on Disney Plus because you also watch my Disney Plus. Sorry, Disney, if you're yeah. listening. What are you going <laughs> to do about it? Um, um, Atlantis. Did you watch X Men: Days of Future Past or did I? No, I didn't. Emperor's New Groove. I don't remember starting that. No, I, Being... I started that and gave up on it. I remember. I remember quite enjoying that when you and I went to see it together back in the day. But it's not really. Yeah, David Spade's only good film in my opinion. Um, yeah. The Incredibles. That must have been you. Yeah. Um, and they were back in the like summer of Sam. So not been watching that much Disney Plus. I'm waiting for yeah. the low-key TV series to come out. Yeah, yeah I saw the um, avatars the other day. But yeah, mostly animated stuff, and then obviously the films. 
Well, to be honest, I didn't watch the Robin Hood films for this month's feature, but we'll get onto them in a bit and yeah, probably find you, out uh, why. Remember them well enough from the previous time you watched them, I would I say. Barely watched the 2018 version, but I've watched the Ridley Scott version, you know, the whole way through. Um, yeah. Continue watching on Amazon Prime. Um, no, not really been using it. So yeah, that that's my selection from this month. All right. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, um, my resolutions are, well, you know, generally speaking, try and watch uh, uh, a classic that rather than, you know, or try and try and watch something that I like but haven't seen in years, just so that I keep the, you know those memories alive. And that that oldie film I watched is uh, Near Dark. Um, we, we mentioned it before when we were talking about Catherine Bigelow, because she is the um, you know one of our favourite directors. And Near Dark was her solo directing debut. Her first film she co-directed with someone else. So Near Dark, nineteen eighty seven. It's a uh, she wanted to do a western, but vampire films were very much in vogue back then with things like The Lost Boys and stuff coming out and Fright Night. So they said, no, we want you to do a vampire movie. So she did a vampire Western because that's how she rolls. Um, So it's kind of set in like the Midwest, like dusty small towns, a young sort of actual cowboy who like works on a ranch, meets a strange, beautiful woman hanging out at a bar at night, has this strange all night encounter where he's, he's clearly falling for her. She's like beautiful, but kind of sort of strange and out there. Just before dawn, she bites his neck and then runs off. And as soon as the sun comes up, he feels himself burning, doesn't feel right. So, you know, you know, as the audience, he's he's basically been bitten by a vampire. He eventually ends up with the vampire group because he's got nowhere else to go, even though they don't like him or don't trust him. And most of them want to kill him, but they give him a chance to prove it can be one of them. So he goes along with them, goes from bar to bar and a really antisocial group that kind of smash up bars, you know, and kill people to eat. So it's pretty, pretty rough. But the girl isn't quite like that. But like him. This is who she's stuck with if she wants to survive because she's a vampire. They drive around in a van with like blacked out windows from place to place. It's kind of a rough, like grimy existence going from town to town. It is very Western in style. It's very stylish. As you can imagine Catherine Bigelow kind of pulling all the stops out to kind of show what she's like. Kind of has an element of like addiction to it, like they're addicted to blood. And obviously it has some proper like gory action and stuff as, as the story resolves itself. I really enjoyed it. It's really, it's really sort of atmospheric. Um, it's got a kind of dreamy atmosphere. It's like a, a, I think the idea of someone being in love with a vampire is not everyone's cup of tea these days because of Twilight. But Catherine Bigelow does it really well. Um, it's certainly a strong entry in the vampire genre if you like that sort of thing. Um, I actually went to see a film at the cinema uh, in the past month as well, which I'm very happy about. Uh, which was Those Who Wish Me Dead. That's the new Angelina Jolie film. I don't know if you know anything about that, James. Um, I think I saw trailers for it, but I couldn't really be asked with it. I'll tell you what: if it was, if this was normal times, I would probably be the same. I would have probably said, oh, "I'll wait for that to come out on Netflix or something," because it's kind of very standard. All the reviews are that it's a completely bog standard action film and all that sort of thing. Um, but because I wanted to go see something at the cinema and it happened to be on at kind of the right time, do you know what I mean? It's like you know, get you know, get done for work, put the baby to bed. Perfect time at a nearby cinema. So I went to see it. It's written and directed by Taylor Sheridan, who did Hell or High Water, which we liked. Oh, yeah. And from from what I can see, what he's done is he was brought in to do a rewrite on an existing project. They're already trying to do this film. The script wasn't working, so they brought him in to do a rewrite. And because it's a fairly big studio picture, Taylor Sheridan sort of saw his chance and said, well, why don't I, as well as rewriting it, why don't I direct it for you? Because he's a director as well. And I'll see if I can get Angelina Jolie on board. And I don't think it was going to have as big a name attached prior to that. So he's kind of used this as a kind of an opportunity to kind of make something for a big studio. 
And it does feel like a, a job to him rather than stuff like Sicario or Hella High Water that he was involved in, you know? Um, but I, I mean, I, I kind of enjoyed it. I mean, basically the storyline is Angelina Jolie is a, one of these fo- um, uh, fire jumpers or smoke jumpers. They parachute into forest fires to uh, to put them out. Something went wrong last, last time out. She's now been relegated to like a remote fire tower out in Montana or somewhere. Uh, and while she's kind of dealing with all of her past issues and the trauma and everything, a kid who's on the run because his dad is being, you know, hunted and murdered by uh, criminals whose conspiracy he's um, uh, he's uncovered, uh, uh, chasing this kid through her her area. She meets the kid, has to protect him. At the same time, there's a forest fire, so she's got to fight the fire and the bad guys. It's a, a completely straight ahead action film. I mean, where it's where it could have been better because you can see signs of a good film because Taylor Sheridan's kind of really gone for it, but. He's, everyone's just gone, look, it's just this film. The studio has said we've got to do this film that goes from A to B. So he introduces some interesting stuff, but they don't really have the opportunity to do much more with it. Like there's a character who is Angelina Jolie's character's ex-boyfriend and the uncle of the kid. That's why the kids come up to that part of the world. But it's just a plot point. They don't develop that in the story. The criminal conspiracy is there for the plot and for the action. So it works for what it is. But because, you know, it's Taylor Sheridan, I I know that if if he'd had the idea from the start, he'd have probably done something more with this. He'd have, like, put it in some sort of wider context, like Sicario looks at kind of the border on organized crime. Hell High Water tells you a lot about life in Texas. In this, he and everyone else involved has just said, look, let's just do a fucking decent action movie, you know? And fair play, because everyone who's doing the bigger sort of, sort of you know, more top-line films are waiting for things to, to even out. And at least they've gone out and released something, you know? Um, I enjoyed it. If you if you fancy a trip to the cinema, you won't be disappointed as long as you recognise what it is. But as I said, on normal circumstances, I would probably have said, wait for it to come on Netflix. Yeah, okay. Um, th- I thought it was very interesting what you would notice is that the uh, the score for the film was by a guy called Brian Tyler, who is clearly a big Hans Zimmer fan. Nice. Everyone should be a Hans Zimmer fan. If you're not a Hans Zimmer fan, then... Um, you're a weirdo. If you don't like Hans Zimmer, everyone should be a yeah. fan of Hans Zimmer. It's just interesting. I mean, there would have been a time when everyone was trying to be John Williams with their musical scores for films, and now everyone yeah. is clearly trying to be Hans Zimmer. It's an interesting yeah, sign. It'll, it'll go in. It'll go in kind of phases. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, other than that, my um, uh, resolution for uh, this year was to make twenty twenty one the year of the carpenter. Uh, this month, I'm doing in the mouth of madness. I'm doing this in order of uh, in ascending order of IMDb rating of of the films on. Uh, you know the the fan response to them, um, and this is about mid table. You know, which is why it's been uh, been featured like halfway through the year. Um, it's outside of Carpenter's kind of peak in the seventies and eighties. It came out in nineteen ninety four. I think it's the last really good film he made. I've got a soft spot for it because it's one of those rare occasions I actually got to see one of his films in the cinema, uh, and I was pleased to see it rated as high as it was because it kind of came and went a bit on release, but it's got a cult following like a lot of his films do. Uh, a lot of people who were like fans of you know nineties horror and stuff in the nineties you know, have really kind of you know enjoyed it at the time and it's still kept alive. Um, so the summary of the film it's kind of it's kind of strange. The whole thing is inspired by H.P. Lovecraft without actually adapting one of his stories, but it draws from that kind of well of ideas of of horrors and monsters you know just on the other side of our reality, uh, and it's got that literary world. It's also very influenced by Stephen King, which will become clear when the story's sort of summarised. Uh, Sam Neill plays an insurance investigator who's been hired by the publishers of a hugely popular novelist called uh, Sutter Kane. He writes these horror novels, which look very Stephen Kingy on on the covers. Uh, and, and this novelist has disappeared just as his new book manuscript is meant to be delivered. 
the in- investigators got to go and find Kane, uh, accompanied by Kane's editor, um, to you know get the uh, to, to get the manuscript so it can be published. And the investigator was wondering if this whole thing is a scam. So he's gone in very skeptical. In the background to this, society seems to be coming apart at the seams. There's these people becoming psychotic, just general breakdown in society. So, and it's there's the suggestion that Sutter Kane's books might be causing this. You know, there's some sort of un- unraveling being caused by his uh, by his books. And this is Carpenter satirizing the uh, the moral panic around horror books and films that you you know periodically have, but also creating this really seductive world which horror fans would love. You know, the idea of the horror stories are coming to life, you know? So yeah. they go searching for Sutter Kane, and which is driving through New England in the northeast of America. And what happens is they sort of go through some sort of breach in reality and end up in the fictional town where all of uh, Sutter Kane's books are set, which is another nod to Stephen King, but it's also how H.P. Lovecraft did things. And now all the scenes and monsters from his stories have come to life, and the investigator can't believe what's going on. Is this like some... You know, have they got special effects? Are they trying to do this for my benefit to publicize the new book? But it soon becomes clear that, no, this is really happening. There is some terrifying horror lurking just on the other side of reality and is about to break into our world. So I really like this film. It's kind of weird. It creates a really atmospheric horror, you know, uh, world for you to, to enjoy. Lots of fantastic ideas in this story. It's really great for someone in my generation who a lot of read of Stephen King horror books uh, and, you know, it's, in, in my opinion, it's the best film that's you know ever, ever been made that's inspired by H.P. Lovecraft. I don't think it's for everyone because I think it's um, I think if you're a fan of John Carpenter, you'll love this film. But I wouldn't I wouldn't make people watch this first if I wanted to introduce John Carpenter to them. If you know what I mean. Um, and if you like Stephen King books and you like you know the H.P. Lovecraft horror, it'll definitely give you something to enjoy. Um, there's a lot of things to like about the film. Um, John Carpenter was listening to a lot of Metallica um, at the time, which has influenced his score for the film, which is a lot of fun to listen to. Um, it's been described retrospectively as the final part of John Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, which started with The Thing and continued with Prince of Darkness. So for a Carpenter fan, this is like kind of you know completing the world he created in his films. Um, so I definitely recommend it, but with that kind of element that don't make this the first John Carpenter film you watch, but you once you get you know the, the John Carpenter vibe, uh, this is a really worthy entry in his list of films. Um, we're approaching the halfway point in the year of Carpenter, and as I said, um, each film is is like you know the slightly better rating on IMDb than the last one. So, second half of the year, we are going to be approaching some of his more famous and iconic ones, uh, uh, building up to a big finish in December. Uh, next month, the year of the Carpenter feature will be Escape from New York, so uh, one of the biggies. But that's everything I watched this month. It's considerably more than many. But not as good as Atlantis, the Lost Empire, so. Not to Atlantis, the Lost Empire. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of great works from Scandinavian vampire drama Let the Right One In to modern heist western Hell or High Water. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations uh, as well. Uh, That list currently includes Wages of Fear, Inherent Vice, The Assassin, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, Departures, Short Bus, 
A Tale of Two Sisters, The City of Lost Children, The French Connection, Under the Skin, Primer, Alphaville, Boyhood, and The Constant Gardener. This month, we're looking at a classic of the gritty downbeat 70s, an Oscar-winning cop drama that uh, James hasn't seen, and which has set the template for police thrillers and car chases in film ever since. Our classic and recommended film for episode 14 is The French Connection. So, James, this was your assignment. Um, uh, so I'll kind of leave you to kind of uh, introduce it and walk through it. But by way of introduction, we talked about how films age on previous episodes, haven't, uh, haven't we? In that uh, something like Rear Window just seems fresh, however, you know, however recently Whenever you, you watch, watch it. it yeah. uh, and other films don't age as well as that. And, you know, a film that, you know, like French Connection was absolutely groundbreaking 50 years ago is not going to seem groundbreaking, you know, all those years later because groundbreaking films tend to be imitated and to become the standard way of making films. So whenever someone like you sits down to watch something for the first time, it's kind of a, you're watching it fresh and you just kind of see it for what it is. Um, but why don't you introduce us to the French Connection and, you know, you know what you knew about it before you sat down to watch it and, you know, and, and how you came to it. Um. Yeah, so it follows these two cops, forgotten the name, but one of them was the inspiration behind the name of Popeye's, the yeah. fast food restaurant in America. But he's, is he Doyle? Popeye Doyle, yeah, that's Gene Popeye, Hackman's character. And then Roy Schneider's character is... Roy um, Schneider is a buddy Rus- Russo, known as, uh, nickname is Cloudy. Yeah, so there are two cops in New York who just kind of, they're just doing like general assignments there. Uh, the, the first time you see them is one of them's dressed up as Santa Claus and they chase a perpetrator. And um, you just see them, you know, stopping perps and doing kind of like minor drug busts. Um, Gene Hackman's character uses quite racist um, language. Apparently that was because he would try and antagonize people in real life because it's inspired by a true story. Um, not entirely sure if that was true, whether he, or he was just a racist piece of shit. Anyway, Gene Hackman's character is kind of like the bad cop, and then um, Roy Schneider's character is kind of like the good cop. But anyway, they're trying to do drug bust, and then they basically get entangled with this uh, massive, massive drug deal that's happening between, um, I want to say, Italian kind of mafiosos in New York and this um, French drug dealer who wants to export um, drugs exactly from, it, yeah. from from Marseille, and the money's absurd. Like apparently they're going to buy the shipment for a few hundred thousand dollars, but they could sell it for like thirty two odd million. That's how much money they can make from it. Mm-hmm. And it's just about how Gene Hackman and um, Roy Schneider um, stop it. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was really good. It's got some real kind of like oh fuck moments, um, and it's 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 very gritty for a film of 1971. It's I I kind of feel like 1970 and 1971 were like the kind of years when films started to change and become a lot more, um, a lot kind of darker and grittier. There's a lot of blood showing. There's a lot of like just you know you see gunshots and it's not just the reaction of the person being shot. You are seeing the blood spattered everywhere. Which today when you've seen a Tarantino film is absolutely fuck all. But back then it was obviously a a big thing. Um, but just as a little side note, I remember Macbeth, the Polanski version after Sharon Tate had been yeah. murdered, is very gory for a film being released in, yeah. in the 70s. So it's very, it's a very yeah, dark and, and gritty that's film. That's interesting you should say, Macbeth, because I think that came out the same year as French Connection, and it's also came out the same year as Dirty Harry. So you can yeah. see a pattern forming. There's this definite darker, downbeat, almost like cynical, uh, pessimistic um, star to these films, isn't there? Yeah, they came out in the same year. So yeah, the films are starting to become darker and um, grittier. 
So anyway, um, there's a lot of moments where Gene Hackman's character is like kind of hell bent on stopping these these guys. He's got no kind of moral compass. Spoiler alert: the film's nearly fifty years old. Um, he ends up shooting his superior, who he absolutely fucking hates. But he's like, "No, I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to try and get this uh, French guy who's um, helping export the drugs." That's like almost the last shot of the film. Um, yeah, that was that, that the one he shoots someone on his own side. That's kind of in the. It's almost like this kind of uh, flurry of bullets as they're trying to as they're trying to take down the um, the the bad guys at the end. Is just uh, it, it, they are so it, it gets so wild that some people are on their own side get shot, don't they? Yeah, and then obviously there's this incredible car chase where um, basically the this right hand man for the French guy says he's going to kill Gene Hackman's character tries to snipe him, fucks it. And there's basically a chase um, between Gene Hackman's guy, Gene Hackman's character and this French guy uh, on the subway. He basically yeah, this takes, is the car chase, isn't this it? This is like the original car chase from any film ever. And, he, uh, and it is very good. It still kind of stands the test of time. And he basically kind of commandeers this subway train or this New York train by... Um, holding the driver yeah, it's, it's yeah it's an l train for the purposes of understanding in people's heads for anyone who hasn't seen it the l train is like it's like the, the the paris metro or something one of these light railways that actually um goes overhead so you can see the train going on the overhead kind of tracks on on like on you know concrete stilts above the road so the train's going by overhead l for elevated train and gene hackman's character is chasing that train on the streets, uh, you know, un- under the tracks, uh, trying to keep up with it in, in heavy New York traffic. Yeah, it's um, it's very good. That that the, there's some parts of the film that are a bit dated. They're obviously they've not got the filming facilities to film, you know, m- crazy car chases for you know the entire film, like a Fast and Furious film, Mike. They've not got CGI and things like that, and incredible, you know, pneumatic stunt, uh, stunt mm. jump things, but. Um, I read some of the trivia that they had to get the cameraman on a wheelchair rather than have it on track, so you can mm-hmm. kind of tell when it's like really shaky. But you, you don't really notice it that much. You're just enjoying the film, and I thought it was. I, I was quite surprised to see that Gene Hackman won Best Actor because I don't actually think the performance actually focuses on focuses on him that much. If you get what I mean, like he's obviously the lead actor in the film, but there's so many different scenes yeah, so in the film that he's the not. Kind of gives you a broader canvas. It's, it's not a character study of Popeye Doyle, is it? Yeah. Um, no, it was good. It was a de- definitely deserves to be on the classic list. I really did enjoy it. it was um, it was nice. I don't want to say nice because it's good, but it was like an engaging film, and it's uh, it's quite quite an easy film to watch. It's not too much to yeah. think about. It's like these cops are going to stop this drug deal kind of thing. So yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting that the um, uh, it's it's almost a case of if you watch this film, you will see where so many other films that you've already seen got a lot of their ideas or stylistic kind of cues from. Uh, because it was hugely influential. Um, just to give a bit of kind of background in terms of the facts around the film, it's directed by William Friedkin, uh, who at this time was a young director who'd come out of TV and documentaries. He'd made a few films like this, but French Connection was re- where he really broke through. Uh, from here, he became one of the biggest named directors of the 70s, especially because his next film uh, made a bit of a splash at the box office as well. That was The Exorcist. So the early 70s were, were completely ruled by William Friedkin pretty much because he just had the two biggest hits. And he had that combination of not just having a biggest hit, but, but being seen as one of the best directors at the same time. Um, you know, Scorsese, by com- you know by comparison, was very highly regarded and his films won lots of awards and are well known. None of them made as much money as the French Connection and The Exorcist. Um, the this um, this film 
is inspired by two real-life cops, Eddie Egan, who's Popeye Doyle's inspiration, and Sonny Grosso, who is uh, Roy Scheider's character's inspiration. They were real-life New York narcotics detectives, and they acted as consultants on this film. The French Connection was actually a non-fiction book about a real case pursued by those two detectives uh, through the 60s. The real-life French Connection um, is a mysterious figure about whom there's all sorts of speculation to this day. He was a French guy who was running the import of heroin over from Europe to America. The names and a lot of the stories been changed, partly to make it as dramatic as they wanted for the film, but also so they could include uh, more recent drug investigations that had happened since that book came out. There were, there were other some of those story elements that you'll see in that film are directly from the book, and some of them are from more recent drug cases, like in the late '60s. So it's inspired by various true events, um, you know, rather than telling just the story of these guys. So, and William Friedkin br- brought this documentary style to the way he filmed things, which is second nature now, right? He basically films on the street. He's got lots of cameras down there. There's a lot of handheld, like you said, that shaky camera look because the camera is just chasing the action. All of that was pretty much invented for this film. Um, Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider obviously became quite big stars on the back of being in this film. Roy Scheider came back for another William Friedkin film, Sorcerer. And and as you can see, it's got this gritty style that pretty much changed the face of American films. I mean, so many American 70s films after this, uh, you know, very much like this. So many car chases are like this film. Um, And... It was about making it real. I mean, that car chase was insane. I mean, if you, William Freakin interviewed now, it says he was an idiot and, you know, he would never do a car chase like this um, again, which is saying something for a guy who followed up this with a film, you know, a few years later called To Live and Die in LA, where he has a, a car chase involving his characters going the wrong way on a motorway, a very busy motorway. But he actually had the, the guys driving that fast, the stunt driver really driving that fast, and a cameraman crouched in the back seat. Um, they didn't clear the road. He was driving through New York traffic like that. And it was that kind of, the 70s was these kind of young, essentially young, slightly crazy men who would kind of do anything to make the movie. Uh, and that's why you got the French Connection. And that's why every film afterwards, especially New York films, have that kind of gritty, grimy, the whole idea of like a 70s grimy feel that people try and recreate now for period films. This is where it was invented. So uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it as well as finding it an interesting sort of document of the time. Do you know what I mean, mate? Yeah, no, it was it was a film that, you know, if someone said, do you want to stick on French Connection or you saw on TV, you'd be like, yeah, I want to watch it. But if it was something ridiculous and obscure, like some of the other films, like I I really didn't get on with Boyhood. I couldn't be arsed watching that, if you know what I mean, on the classic list. But it was a film that yeah. deserves to be a classic because I think, although it is an 18, you know, anyone with any t- for taste in film can, you know, watch it. Yeah, I think sometimes a classic film is interesting for, I mean, I think Citizen Kane would be the same if, if you sit anyone down to watch that. It's a very interesting film to watch, and it's a good story, and it's well done. But I think all these years later, sometimes you just going to wonder why people are so bothered. And you say, well, I actually, you see that flashback style or that that camera angle that was invented there, which is, you know, it, depending on it, you have to be quite nerdy to enjoy some of those films. Some of these films are genuinely a wild ride to watch and really fun to watch at the same time. You know? Yeah. No, it was it was it was excellent. I really I really did enjoy it. It was a, a very good recommendation. Very good. So that's our watch list. Um, as always, we hope that our feature on classics inspires you to watch the film we've discussed, but also to get around to watching any of those films you've got on your list that uh, that you haven't seen yet. Uh, and hopefully, we've given you another another good entry in that spirit.
And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserves to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month, we're looking at a stunning futuristic action film, which despite its brilliance, was a flop at the box office and all but killed hopes of a movie franchise. The hidden gem for episode 14 is Dread. So James, we've both watched this and enjoyed this you know, many times before, but um, what, what, what I would find interesting is that given the source material and everything, apart from the film Dread, and you may have seen the, the, the Stallone one years earlier, how much did you know about Judge Dredd, the character and the comics and everything? you know, wider world. That made an impression on, on your generation, as it were. I feel like there's two generations of people that watch Dread. And there's the people that saw the awful Stallone version. And I think even though it's an awful film, people that watch it still kind of have like a fond memory of it because it's Stallone and it's got some action in it. Whereas this mm. one's like a really polished piece of work. It's, it's, it for a film that didn't cost a lot of money to make, it's very, it's very well done. It doesn't look kind of, shitty you know it doesn't like cheap animated or cgi effects and it's just it's a good story it's you know judge dread against the odds in a big tower block against a you know super psychotic uh drug queen pin is that a word kingpin queen pin because obviously the bad character is leah heady Um, queen pin should be a word even if it isn't uh, yeah smash the patriarchy and all that but anyway (laughs) um yeah, and it's just, it's an X. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go watch that film. That's all you have to do for the trailer. A 15-second trailer. I'm Judge Dredd. I'm going to this uh, shoot building to shoot the fuck out of everyone. Sound. Take my money. And that's exactly what it is. It's very good. It's, you know, totally totally bonkers. It's totally bananas. And it's uh, a good performance from Carl Urban, even though you can only see his fucking chin. Um, yeah. yeah, anyone who's not seen it, just get it watched. It's if you, if you like films like The Raid, because The Raid is pretty much the exact same film, except less martial arts and more guns and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, t- totally love that type of film where it's against the odds kind of fighting, where you're fighting up against these bad arsehole gangsters and absolutely beating the shit out of them. Top, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know we'll we'll go we'll go into a little bit later as to why it didn't succeed at the box office. But you would think they've done everything they can, as you say, to introduce you know the world of Judge Dredd because this is a whole you know futuristic world that has many stories written in it. But what they've done to introduce it is to say, look, here's this story, this this cop. You quickly pick out the fact that it's a futuristic cop who's heavily armoured. And, and apart from that, it's just, yeah, imagine that cop having to fight his way through a building. It's like, well, that's nice and simple. That should that, that should be enough to get you in, right? Um, so it's a shame that that despite them doing everything they could really to make the film successful, it, it, it wasn't. Um, in terms of background, um, the original Judge Red comes from comics. It was part of a comic called 2000 AD, in which Judge Red was one of several features every uh, you know every you know week or month. I can't remember how it was published, but every every issue there would be a Judge Red story, a Strontium Dogs issue, a Rogue Trooper issue, and so on. And Judge Dredd was the most popular uh, character, you know, spun off and got his own comic. So you could just buy a Judge Dredd comic and get longer, bigger stories. Um, it, came, it started in 1979. It was inspired in a way by Dirty Harry and that shoot first, ask questions later, Hollywood police archetype. So an interesting follow on from French Connection, which comes from the same era. But it was also a highly satirical take on that character and the attitudes and politics around it. It's set in a future America that's completely broken down, where people have nothing. Uh, you know, they're overcrowded, bored, don't have a job, and live in horrible, violent cities. So why should they cooperate? Um, and there's a, a fascist, totalitarian regime presiding over these mega cities. You know, the, the idea is that you know, mega city one is the northeast of of the United States, and 
it's you know everywhere from like Philadelphia, New York, Boston, you know, and, and all over those places. And about eight hundred million are now crammed into these giant tower blocks. Judges like Judge Dredd are the entire police system. They're not just the arresting officer, but also the judge, jury, and in some cases executioner. They can dispense sentence right there and then. That's obviously uh, something that's been crying out to be filmed, right? And they they tried in the nineties to make it with Stallone, and it was crap for all the reasons that uh, you know a film like that is crap. You know when they don't do it right. This version is technically a remake, but I think there's a good example. You know, this is a good example of why remake needed to be made because this is a great story that deserves a good film, and you know, frankly, it deserves a good you know series of films. Um, this version introduces Judge Dredd as well as another classic character from visual comics, uh, Judge Anderson. She's a mutant with psychic abilities. She's also an established character in the comics. Um, this is you know, where she starts out her career. She's a rookie that Judge Dredd is testing out, and they just happen to be nearby when uh, the drug boss, uh, Mama, played by Lena Headey, throws three drug dealers off the top of a 200-story building, and they make a horrible splat in the, uh, in the, uh, the atrium on the ground floor. Uh, Dredd and Anderson walk in to investigate, and when Mama realizes that there are judges on, on the scene investigating her, she locks the building down and sends her you know, her goons, her, her people to, uh, to kill them. And, uh, anyone who's a regular ordinary citizen living in the tower block better just shut their door and, uh, and hide. Right. Uh, and what follows is an incredibly violent, full on balls out action film of the type you don't see very often these days, do you? Yeah, it's, it's pretty gruesome, but it's, it's awesome. Anyone who likes action and kind of, you know, heavily gruesome action yeah, films, I mean- it's, it's for you. And, and 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 as you said, James, they didn't have a lot of money to spend on this. That the you know these budget figures can sometimes vary because it can, you know, you, you know exactly what number to rely on. But the absolute maximum this cost is forty five million dollars for a futuristic film where there's much going on visually and everything. That's not a lot of money by modern standards. Um, and like you say, it mostly looks doesn't look cheap at all. I mean, I think there are a couple of areas in which you can see that there are budget constraints. For example, they had to limit the um, uh, the action to that one one location i wasn't super keen on the judge motorbikes for the benefit of the audience judges drive these kind of armored motorbikes around they didn't look as cool in the film as they do in the comics uh or even frankly as they do in the, in the stallone one because the stallone one had a lot more money um that looked a little bit cheap and and what they had to do is they had to make a virtue of the fact they had a relatively limited budget so what they've done is rather than try and create a 22nd century world where everything is new They've said there are here are these new tower blocks which are rising out of the ground, but the old world is still there. They haven't, you know, they haven't done anything to kind of get rid of the old, you know, shitty world. So there's some older vehicles on, you know, driving around, uh, and you know, there's still people on skateboards because I think that they just said, look, we haven't got the money to create the whole world of, of of Judge Dredd, so we'll just put some things in which people will recognise, and they'll put the money in the visuals and action and the judges which go in there. And it's definitely money well spent. There are incredible special effects. There's a lot of use of slow motion, um, which is cleverly done because the drug that the drug kingpin, queenpin is selling is called slow-mo. And it makes people experience things at one one hundredth of the normal speed. So there are scenes where people are on those drugs and therefore the action takes place really slowly, which is very striking. They use a lot of very interesting lighting and colors to that so the film looks really different really amazing and the action is full-on i mean when some of the action happens in slow motion that is a bit too much for some people because you know seeing a bullet go through someone in slow motion is quite gruesome 
Um, but if you want to see some real balls out action, then this is genuinely it. And as well as that, it does genuinely capture the wit and style of the original. I mean, this, the political satire of Judge Dredd is right there because you know what it's like when you watch these things. When you watch Dirty Harry, when you watch these tough cops, in yourself, or certainly I am, you don't, you wouldn't want to live in a world where the cops are like that, right? But you don't mind watching a film where the cops are like that. And that's yeah. exactly what the style of these films is. You wouldn't want to live in the world of Judge Dredd. And a lot of the storylines from the original Judge Dredd series are stories about how this is a terrible world to live in, but it's a very exciting world to experience in, in a film. And it's brilliantly done. Carl Urban is great. All the main actors are good, and they've got a nice balance of characters. You know, Judge Anderson, um, Olivia Philby is very good. Lena Headey is really good as Marmar, and Donald Gleason's put up on tech guy. And the, the various kind of bad guys who are... Um, Including one of the guys out of the wire, we played uh, one of the one of the, the, the main guys in the wire. They're all very good, and it's just it's just you could not possibly ask for more if you like a full on action film. Which is why it's all the more disappointing that it failed at the box office, right? Yeah, we probably won't get another one because it made no money. Yeah, it um, it made barely thirty million dollars against a forty five million dollar budget. Which, as you say, you you, you you can't just make your budget back. To be successful, you have to make all the marketing and other costs back. Um, So it flopped. Uh, This film came out in 2012, and there's been no signs of another Judge Dredd film since. Um, The reasons that people have given or speculated as to why it it wouldn't have succeeded are R-rated action films, you know, the American R-rating or a 15-18 rated film here in the UK, it's not good for the American box office. I mean, if you look at all the big blockbusters these days, they all tend to be 12 or PG-13 rated, which is why the Avengers films are so successful, because they work at that rating um you know if they tried to tone or water this film down to get that rating it wouldn't work and if you make a film as gory and bloody as this it does lose you some of your audience that i mean that's not enough by itself this film could still have found an audience um and also the other things that they say there aren't really any big star names in here the main character doesn't take his helmet off that doesn't work for everyone some people worried that it was too similar to the raid although i don't think that would have been a problem necessarily because you know that they're not really the same film they're not really pitching it exactly the same audience um you know the raids in indonesian with subtitles so i don't think that film took all the potential audience for this film but a lot of people have actually said i don't know if you read up on this james but including carl urban he said that the whole problem of this film was the marketing they absolutely failed to get the word out this film was coming out i mean when this film came out in 2012 i mean i would have been queuing up to watch it and i didn't hear about it coming out they absolutely failed to to market the film um, properly, which is it, it's a terrible failure by the marketing because it's a comic book property with a, with an existing fan base. Um, and as you said, if you watch a trailer for this film, you, you, so many people would just want to go and watch it, and they didn't manage to get the word out at all. Uh, and they released it at a pretty crap time to watch films in the US because you know after it's, it came out just after the summer. And people aren't going into the cinema in such great numbers. So if you're going to get a film out at that time, you really need to get the word out, and they didn't. Um, and that rings true for me is the reason why this film failed, because it, when it came out on DVD and Blu-ray, it was the number one seller of all films released at the time. Because by which time people had heard the films come out, said, shit, I missed it at the, the cinema, I must buy the video. Um, and it sold huge amounts on DVD and Blu-ray. So this is a missed opportunity. This could have been a hit if they'd marketed it properly, you know, released it at the right time, get it out there, you know, do the kind of marketing that, that does its work for you. I mean, why why is there no social media? You know, why is there nothing from the fans? Why are you not giving fans of Judge Dredd preview screenings so they can get the word out for you? They didn't do any of the things that would normally work for, um, uh, you know, for a film like this. They just didn't do it. And, and it's a shame because I don't think we're going to get a film of this now. 
Yeah, although it works on its own as a standalone, I think. so. Yeah, yeah. For those who are fans of this and would like to see more, there is a lot of talk of uh, Netflix having a series called Mega City One, which will be, I mean, mostly Judge Dredd, but there are other stories in, you know, in that world that you can have as well. Um, that's been delayed somewhat by um, you know COVID and everything else, but we are still promised that it's going to come out. Um, they should have the time to explore some of the best storylines from the original Judge Dredd. Uh, and presumably a pretty generous budget because these Netflix shows, if you look at things like The Witcher and you look at HBO shows like Game of Thrones, they do get the budget they need for for, for big, you know, big special effects and everything. Uh, as of March 21, which is the most recent thing I could find, there is a, a production company working on this. They've got concept art and storyline ideas out there. Um, so people are hopeful this is going to come out after all this current disruption is over. And uh, I, you know, I reckon it'd be a very successful show to do. I mean, the other thing about anything like this is that... Um, you know, Judge Dredd isn't one story. There's lots of long-running storylines that would lend themselves quite well to a series. So I'm very hopeful about that. Aye, fingers crossed, hopefully. Now for our One That Got Away feature, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the big screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we're looking at a film that could have completely changed the course of modern superhero films if it hadn't been cancelled only days before production was due to start. The one that got away for episode 14 is George Miller's Justice League. So, James, how much had you even heard about a, a Justice League film with George Miller at the helm before we decided to do it for this feature? got mentioned quite heavily when they were making the one with Zack Snyder and everyone was basically yeah. saying why are we not just letting George Miller do this because he did really well with uh, Mad Max Fury Road he's still got yeah. his you know filmmaking ability he's not lost it um, and Zack Snyder's fucking trash and then we um, just that's that's kind of when I first heard about it um, really yeah it's interesting I mean I hadn't actually heard that much about it I have to say that when they were making the new DC Justice League film I wasn't really paying a lot of attention because I'd been so frankly disappointed with most of the DC films that have been out lately um but you know when you're you know when you're doing a podcast where you need a new feature every month you then you tend to go looking for stories like this and when I saw George Miller's Justice League tell me about this so by way of background um for anyone who doesn't know um George Miller is an Australian filmmaker most famous for the Mad Max film series. Um, he's born in 1945. He's the son of Greek immigrants. Um, he actually qualified as a doctor first and practiced as a doctor for some years before he got into films, but he'd always wanted to be a filmmaker. And eventually quit his um, medical career to become a film director, making his debut with the original Mad Max film in 1979. Now, this was at a point when Australian cinema was kind of exploding onto the international scene, and Mad Max was kind of the pinnacle of both the... Australian exploitation films known as Ausploitation, but also the Australian New Wave, where talented Australian directors like Miller, but also Peter Weir and other people like that, uh, gained sort of notice worldwide and, and, and ended up working in Hollywood, a lot of them. Um, George Miller has won an Academy Award. He was the producer director for the best animated feature uh, of, of that year, Happy Feet. Um, and he was nominated for best director for Mad Max Fury Road, beaten out only by uh, Inaritu for The Revenant. There is another Australian director called George Miller, who I used to get up mixed up with this one, but it's not the same guy. Now, George Miller's Hollywood career is a bit strange. You would have thought that someone would have signed him on to do a major action film, some sort of blockbuster or sci-fi epic. 
But nothing like that really shows up in his CV. You know, he's done the Mad Max films kind of off his own bat. But I don't, I never quite understood why Hollywood wouldn't look at what George Miller did, especially with Mad Max 2, and say, right, Miller, here, come over here, do that with one of our big films. Um, but his CV doesn't really have any of that. There's The Witches of Eastwick that, you know, the film was Cher, Susan Sarandon, and Jack Nicholson, which is very of its time, a medical drama based on a true story called Lorenzo's Oil. Um, he produced and uh, wrote the first Babe film and directed the second Babe film, Pig in the City. Um, and, and, and as mentioned, Happy Feet. But it, it's a very not George Miller CV, you know, outside of his kind of Australian films. Um, the nearest he got other than, than that was he was one of the directors hired and fired from Contact, the Jodie Foster film from the 90s about interstellar space travel. Oh, um, but he... The thing was, the studio wanted Robert Zemeckis for that film all along, and eventually Miller, you know, fell out with the studio, got fired, and eventually Robert Zemeckis got to make that film, and and that was that. So there is a missing link, and this is the missing link. There was a massive superhero film that George Miller nearly made, and when we say nearly made, I'm not talking about, you know, Tarantino's Silver Surfer script, which could have been made but wasn't. We are talking, you know, or John Carpenter getting fired from, you know, uh, Firestarter and someone else doing it. This film was ready to shoot. I mean, they cast it, they had costumes, they had everything set, they had a budget of $250 million. They were getting ready to make it, and it was cancelled. Literally days before production, you know, actual photography was due to start, this film was cancelled. Uh, and as a result, uh, DC didn't follow up with a, a shared sort of universe of superheroes until they came to, to to start doing the whole Zack Snyder thing a few years later. Um, yeah. So things could have gone very differently. Um, for the benefit of everyone who's not super familiar with comics, the Justice League is essentially DC's equivalent of the Avengers. Um, although the Justice League came first because DC had actually been going for like 20 odd years longer than, um, uh, Marvel. Marvel started out in the early sixties. DC started out in about 1940. Um, so by the time, by 1960, when they first did Justice League, a lot of DC's superheroes are quite big name, quite established. Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman, They'd recently expanded with the people like Flash and Green Lantern. So Justice League's been around a long time. Um, but obviously in the film world, Avengers came first by a number of years. Their first film was in 2012, and Marvel had been planting the seeds for that film from 2008 onwards. Uh, the Justice League we we eventually got was the, the disaster of 2017. The Snyder Cut that recently came out was an attempt to, I don't know, salvage that. But DC's never really got its film universe going, and this was the opportunity to do it. Um, so I was fascinated to hear about this. Um, what did you find out about the the actual script and ideas for the film when you looked into it, mate? Um, so it's... I can't really discern what the plot was meant to be, but it's called Justice League Mortal. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it, it seemed to have everyone. It had Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. Um, did I have Green Lantern? Who cares? Um, Green Lantern shit. Um, it had The Flash. Um, apparently, John Stewart was cast as the... Oh, no, John Stewart's character as the Green Lantern. I was like, wait, what? That's a... Yeah, yeah. That, that's um, that, What that is is that Green Lantern is one of these superhero characters that um, has had different people you know, taking on the superhero persona over time. The first one was Hal Jordan, and John Stewart was a later one. Yeah. Same thing happened with The Flash and a few other people. But did you find out much about the story? It's, I um, found a couple of things. I actually managed to get a copy of the script and downloaded it um, and oh. found a, a, a web article that, that showed what it was all about. I mean, essentially, it was drawing on two main storylines for its plot. 
um, Justice League Tower of Babel and Justice League OMAC project or OMAC project. Um, the villains would have been Maxwell Lord, although a very different Maxwell Lord to the one who was recently in the Wonder Woman film. Um, in this version, Maxwell Lord is a is friends with uh, Bruce Wayne. He is a you know successful sort of a bit of a whiz kid businessman with you know a lot of money and very successful. Um, and uh, he has managed to get access to a load of super powered cyborgs and and files that Batman keeps on the other superheroes. Batman is you know once the Justice League emerges and once all these other superheroes are in the world, Batman is afraid of their power and what happens if one of them goes rogue. The idea being it's all very well if Superman and Wonder Woman and the Flash and everyone else uh, are being, you know, good and, and, and helping everyone. But what if one of them turns bad? How would we stop them? They're almost gods, you know? And Batman set up these resources, cyborgs who could fight superheroes and files on the weaknesses of the superheroes, who they are, where they live, and and what what could what can hurt these superheroes. So he knows that Kryptonite kills Batman, etc. Now, he was using them, uh, you know, just in case anything goes wrong. Maxwell Lord gets access to them and uses them to try and destroy the Justice League. Um, his motivation is that this project, the OMAC project, was um, partly there to stop, you know, superheroes going wrong, but also to try and fund other superheroes. And he was the subject of experiments as a child which traumatized him. So he's got some bitterness towards them, which has turned him into a villain. Talia al Ghul also features, who's the daughter of Raz al Ghul, who has a romantic relationship with Batman, but is embittered by, you know, Batman killing his father and then rejecting her. So those are the villains, and they're big villains in the in the world. It seems to be overall, rather than just taking those two storylines, the idea is, is that these cyborgs are now taking down the superheroes one by one, and the Justice League has to join up and fight. Um, even though they are really, really vulnerable now, these superheroes can all be hurt and they have to fight and find a way, you know, even at, you know, even though they're in, in terrible danger, um, to to stop this guy um, doing you know all kinds of damage. Um, the the script that I found it opens with a with a funeral of a superhero, and you don't know which superhero it is. Um, I mean, spoilers because this film's never going to get made. It turns out to be the Flash. The Barry Allen Flash at the end sacrifices himself to to beat to beat these guys off, and at the end, Wally um, Wally West, his nephew. Uh, who in the DC comics becomes the next Flash, takes over because he's got speed powers. Um, it's apparently very, it's very based on and is almost a continuation of the animated Justice League series because DC's had a very, very successful series of animated versions of all their superheroes, Batman, Superman, all of these, Green Lantern, they're very, very highly regarded and they thought, well, let's draw on that for a live action Justice League film. So they've essentially said, that's the story, that's what's going to bring these superheroes together. Um what I would say is it still falls prey a little bit to DC's need to almost desire to kind of do all, do too much at once. Because aside from how badly the whole thing was done, one of the criticisms of the first of the Justice League film we got was it tried to establish in one film what Marvel normally takes three or four films to set up. Do you know what I mean? And there's an element of that as well, that they kind of throw it all down and you've got to kind of work out that this isn't the first Green Lantern, that there's another guy who can be Flash. It's like, hold on, if you've watched the Justice League animated series, you'll be on board. But if you haven't, I think um, the, the the wider audience might have been a little bit confused by it, but we, what you know, we don't know what the final script would have been. I mean, these could have been some of the notes they got back. They might have streamlined it once they were filming to solve that problem. You know. Um. Yeah. No, it it, it does sound interesting, it, and it's obviously an interesting director for that kind of film. 
Um, you do worry though that because it's George Miller and because Warner Brothers are notorious for fucking tinkering with these kind of films and these kind of projects to try and make it just like a general crowd pleaser, whether it would have actually gone ahead even if they hadn't cancelled it four days ahead, because I imagine there would have been a lot of clashes between yeah both of them, uh, but between Miller and um, the director. But that's, I, that's, I didn't know it was a funeral starting with the Flash, which is. Um, an interesting way to start a film because you don't actually see superheroes die very often. Um, yeah, I mean, personally, I'm not keen on that idea. Not that I'm not keen on the idea of the... Because I think it actually works quite well in the comics. But if this is the first film in a Justice League series, one of your main characters like that, who's also the point of view of the film, he's like the... I mean, because as you said, in, in the in the, in the the new version of, the, of Justice League, they give you a bit more of the Flash, and that's good because he's quite a good character. And they use Flash as almost like the point of view character for the audience. He's the young, you know, slightly overawed of Wonder Woman and Superman. He's the person that introduces the audience to all the other superheroes. So then to kill him off at the end of the first film, it doesn't feel like a proper arc. Do you know what I mean? Similar to when Luke Skywalker appears and then dies in, in one film of the second of the of the next trilogy of, of Star Wars. It's like that would have been a better end to the next film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, the other thing that I found a bit strange about it, I mean, look, on the on the one hand, George Miller with $250 million doing a superhero action film, that's exciting. I mean, that guy does action like nobody else, right? Um, but I also thought the casting was a bit strange for this film. I don't know if you saw any cast lists. Um, somebody that I didn't know was playing Batman. Army Hammer was playing Superman. Someone, someone that I didn't know was playing Wonder Woman. Teresa Palmer was playing Talia Al Ghul. Jay Baruchel was playing the villain. Um, yeah, very interesting so, yeah. kind of cast. So what I read was, and Army Hammer would have made more sense as Superman, but what I read was he would have been playing Batman. Army Hammer. Or was it the other way around? Did I get that mixed up? Yeah, Army Hammer was going to play Batman, which I think would have been a bit because weird. Because it makes sense. Army, <laughs> Army Hammer would only be in his early 20s playing um, playing Batman, which bat, there's no there's no young Batman stories. Do you know what I mean? He's always 30 plus, you know? He's had to go through that darkness to get where he is, you know? Um, I've heard of Adam Brody. He was going to be the Flash. Um, Megan Gale was going to be Wonder Woman. The only other thing I've seen her in, she was the Valkyrie in Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, yeah. Um, Superman was going to be a guy called DJ Catrona. He's done some stuff, but isn't that big? It's hard to say, right? Because if they'd been in a big film like this, their careers might have taken off and then we'd have heard of them, right? Um, but when I look DJ Catrona up, he's five foot ten. Now, playing, you don't have a five foot ten guy playing Superman. Superman's a uh, big fucking bloke. Yeah, well, Henry Cavill's kind of like defined that because Henry Cavill's fucking enormous. Yeah, but Christopher Reeve was like six foot four. Um, Brandon Routh, who played him in Superman Returns, he was like six foot four. Yeah, but I you mean, don't like, have a, you don't have a little guy oh, as Superman. Like Superman is a god. Like effectively, he is. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, yeah, it's interesting because it, it, that, that's that's the odd thing about this because in in the Superman animated series, you've ever seen any of them? He's a massive, bulky, muscly guy. You know the way they animate their male characters in the DC animation is they got the giant kind of V shaped blocks of granite for bodies, right? Um, but this guy was a normal size, normal looking five foot ten bloke, and that just doesn't work as Superman. I'm sorry. Um, Common was going to be Green Lantern. Green Lantern is Green Lantern. I, I think it's, a it's bit of a non-event, isn't it? Yeah. He's. I mean, he's consistent with that incarnation that they were doing of Green Lantern. I. I, I just think the wider audience is. There's going to be people in the back of minds going, "Hold on, Hal Jordan's Green Lantern, isn't he?" And 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 now they've thrown you into the middle of a superhero's kind of evolution. Um, guy called Santiago Cabrera as Aquaman. I don't think it matters he plays Aquaman, to be honest, in this kind of scenario. That's not a problem. Um, 
And Hugh Keysburn, obviously from the Mad Max films, was going to be Martian Manhunter, who's a largely CGI character anyway. So it would have been about the voice, right? Um, Which is what Hugh Keysburn has in abundance. So yeah, definitely. Um, so I, that casting is that casting is is weird, and I, I'm not quite sure they've done. It. I mean, personally. I, I don't think Nolan was was in the mood to cooperate with a wider DC universe at the time, so I'm not sure they'd have got Christian Bale to play Batman. But I think what could have made this work is if they'd got Bale to be Batman, right? Yeah. And uh, and if they'd perhaps kept Brandon Routh, or Ruth, I don't know how you pronounce his name, Brandon Routh as Superman, because while the, the film Superman Returns was crap, I thought Brandon Routh was pretty good, and I think he could have carried off Superman a few more times if they'd made the films work. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as I can see, that the real challenge is um, is that I think you need some slightly more people who are slightly more suited to those characters. Play and Megan Gale. I mean, if you actually look at her, right? She's she's quite tall. She's quite athletic looking. She's got dark hair. Yeah, she could probably be Wonder Woman. But is that enough? You think about around about that time. I mean, Angelina Jolie. I'm less convinced by, but Charlize Theron was knocking around in uh, at that time. You could have got her as Wonder Woman. And we all know that she can do an action film. Yeah. Um, and I just think they needed a little bit more star power in the cast if they were going to make this work. And I think they needed... what well, Because I, I think one of the things that I think made the film not happen is people were sitting there going, so Brandon Routh is Superman, and they were still trying to do a sequel to Superman Returns. Christian Bale is Batman, but now we've got a film where it's other people playing those characters. Is that is that going to work? Um. I think it, mm. I think their best chance would have been for the people currently playing those characters to be in this film, and then at least you've got that. It doesn't have to be directed by Christopher Nolan. It doesn't have to be the same world, right? But I think that would have worked better. Yeah, although um, I suppose how would Christian Bale feel going from a Batman, which is set in a realistic world where it's all almost physics based? You know, it's no, there's no mm-hmm. extraterrestrials and you know superpowers to a universe where now you've got fucking folk in space and shit like that. I don't think Christian Bale would have wanted to do that character. No, Maybe I, don't think did, have, I don't know. I don't think he'd have wanted to go for it. I mean, no, there's a, there's a contemporary interview with him at the time saying he hoped he just wanted to make sure that none of this interfered with what he was doing with Nolan. He kind of didn't really want anything to do with it. But I mean, frankly, I think Christian Bale as a Batman who doesn't like the idea of all of these like superpowers, people from space actually works for this story. But I, I think they, they, he would have taken some convincing to do it. Um, but if they'd managed to maybe slot this in between Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, there's also some challenges because Talia Al Ghul. I don't want to give too many spoilers away. Is sort of has some connection with the trilogy that, uh, and Ra's Al Ghul has a connection with Batman's Nolan's Batman trilogy. So there might have been some conflict with that storyline as well. Um, so I think there was it. I, it's the sort of film that I'm not surprised the studio bailed a little bit. They look at that cast list. Everything would have they needed a fair wind. Do you know what I mean to get it done? And they didn't get a fair wind. There was a writer's strike in 2008, which caused huge disruption to the industry. Um, Hollywood found out at great cost that not even they can make films without writers. Um, They also had a struggle with Australian film grants. Australia is one of those places where they they offer tax rebates to films being made in their country because, you know, it gives lots of jobs to the Australian film industry. Um, And those tax credits are basically worth millions and essentially expand the available budget for your film. Uh, so it kind of depended if they were going to get that kind of money to make the film, they needed to do it in Australia. But late in the day, the Australian go- government made a ruling that this film wasn't quite Australian enough to qualify. They had an Australian director and um, it was going to be filmed there. That somewhere, you know, these things can be a bit arbitrary, but they have essentially decided that 
these comics and these characters are all very American and they're portraying American places. So it just wasn't Australian enough to get the, uh, to get the, the money back. Yeah, so it all, it all kind of collapsed. I mean, I would have really enjoyed seeing this if a, they'd got that money. George Miller had got the chance to make the film the, you know, he, the way he likes to make films. And if they'd maybe resolve some of those cast and storyline issues, but uh, it wasn't to be. Uh, and instead we got um, the Zack Snyder vision of, uh, of that. Which was just shit, wasn't it? No, it's not going to work. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I say, the world, the, this this world might have been more interesting if they'd had a chance to do it. I would say keep Flash alive. If they wanted to kill off a character at the end of the film, they could have killed off Green Lantern because Green Lantern is another character who um, gets someone else to replace them. The whole idea of the Green Lantern story is that, you know, a, a new champion is selected uh, and that's how, how Jordan was replaced. So you could have done that. And, and that would have wouldn't have had quite the same kind of clash for the audience. Kind of going, oh, we've just got to know this Barry Allen character, and now he's not there. Um, they could have killed off Robin. You know, they could have had Robin in there as Batman, and or, or seeming to die, and he comes back as Nightwing. You could have had that. Um, they could have maybe had Cyborg. Um, so there's some things they could have done to make this work. Um, but if this is a really interesting, what might have been? I mean, we're never going to see this film. It's never going to be made. If they reboot Justice League, it will be a different way with different people. I'd love to see George Miller get the gig. I mean, surely after seeing Mad Max Fury Road, people are going, yeah, let's get George Miller again. But Hollywood's a weird place. They yeah. see you do a film that's brilliant and then get you in and then stop you doing all the things that make your film brilliant. So it'll be some if, – if DC, and I assume they'll keep trying, if DC keep trying with Justice League, it won't be this. It'll be something else. Yeah. No. We close the first route of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they are justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film that they should have left well alone. This month, we're hate-watching a double bill of remakes which attempted to give the 21st century action epic treatment to a much-filmed classic legend. For episode 14, we're looking at the 2010 and 2018 versions of Robin Hood. So, James... You um, do you have a favourite Robin Hood film? Let's start with that. Do you have a good Robin Hood film that you like? No, I think they're all kind of shit. <laughs> no, that's not even a joke. The Men in Tights one is just a big kind of comedy parody thing. The one with it's not Mel Brooks's best. It's got bits I enjoy, but it's not part of Mel Brooks's peak the period. The one with um, Kevin Costner shit, and the one the Ridley Scott one shit, and the worst one is the Taron Egerton one, which is a shame because it's got a really good cast. Yeah, I mean, the classic Robin Hood film that was like very beloved of its era was the the 1930s uh, with Errol Flynn, which is a classic example of good old-fashioned Hollywood swashbuckling. Um, and back then they did these things unironically. Robin Hood is a hero. He swings through the trees. He's a great archer. He has great sword fights with the bad guy. Uh, the villains are all moustache-twirling bad guys and, uh, and are up to dangerous schemes. Uh, as goodies and baddies, and, and it's great fun to watch. It's Robin Hood as you'd play it in the school playground, right? Um, in modern day, they tr- they keep trying putting different spins on it, but Robin Hood's an adventure character, you know, and see, what I would say about this, there's been many, many versions of, uh, uh, of Robin Hood, so it's not like if you do a remake now, you're bespirching the original. You just need to come up with a good idea. Yeah. Um, 
you know, but if you look at TV movies and series together, there has been 30 odd versions of, of Robin Hood. My favorite is, um, it was a TV series in the 80s called Robin of Sherwood, which notwithstanding the limitations of British 80s TV is really good. Um, and the way it made it work, the way it updated it was it went back to kind of some of the myths and legends of Robin Hood. Um, the idea that Robin Hood is almost a mystical character. There was, there's a lot of kind of pre-Christian sort of religion and power of the earth and this strange character called Hearn the Hunter who's kind of a prophet and is, is kind of, you know, selected Robin to fight injustice in the land. And that kind of, that's a take I hadn't seen before, and they they did it really well. It's got Ray Winstone in it, and it's got a bunch of other people. In it. He didn't play Robin Hood; he plays Will Scarlet. Imagine. Um, but, it, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. I mean, I'm we've had anime. Him, you snag. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We've had versions with animated animals. We've had versions with Brian Adams' theme song. You know, and well, when Mel Brooks has done a spoof of a story, that story's probably been done enough. You know. Um, so it's not a case of how dare they do a remake. It's a case of this is fair game for a new version, but if it's you know if there's nothing new, what are we watching it for? You know. So why, yeah. why don't we start with the 2010 version, the Ridley Scott version? I mean, what did you think of this? Uh, it's all right. Again, good cast. You know, Russell Crowe probably a bit old to play Robin Hood, in my opinion, by that time. Yeah, he's about yeah, forty. He's about forty-seven. Yeah. Um, then. But I do like Mark Strong as the bad guy, as uh, the yeah. big bad. Another it's strong. Got a good cast. Oscar Isaac's in it. Uh, Leia Sidhu, William Hurt, Kate yeah. Blanchett. I always watch Kate Blanchett. You know, Kate Blanchett and Thor Ragnarok is Pete Kate Blanchett, by the way. Yeah, um, but um, you know what I thought about this this Robin Hood film. My main problem with it is it's not a Robin Hood film. Until like the last two minutes, it's a film about disputes over who gets to be king of England. You know, yeah, he doesn't do any of the Robin Hood things. He doesn't, I think they they raid one shipment of grain that's going from Nottingham to York, but he never gets, he never establishes that there's a Robin Hood and that he's in Sherwood Forest and that there are outlaws and, you know, people on the fringes of society. They mention it, and that's where he ends up at the end of the film. He doesn't do any of that. He gets involved in the writing of Magna Carta. This isn't a Robin Hood film. That's the problem. Yeah, it, it was just dumb. It wasn't very much, you know, in Sherwood Forest. It was his little fucking little mud hut, basically, in the middle yeah. of fucking nowhere. It was just shit. It was it Is was it? a bit shame. It was a bit, it was a bit like there wasn't any enthusiasm from anyone. You could tell, like, Ridley Scott wasn't properly into this. And you, and you could mm. tell, tell the difference between this and The Martian because his yeah, heart yeah. was totally in The Martian. It was a much better film. I, I think you're um, right. And you, you know what? That when This is intended to be a historical it tries to be a bit more like this is, you know, rooted in medieval history. And yet in the opening s- section of the film where they put the, the stuff up on the screen saying, this is where we are, this is what's happening. Right. They get the century wrong. Do they? Oh God. It's, it says this is happening in 12th century England when in fact it's happening in 13th century England. Oh, that's good, isn't it? I don't think anyone was putting the, the, the normal requisite level of effort in. And, and that probably explains Russell Crowe's wandering accent. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, it's I mean, not that's shocking. It's not great. It's not terrible. If it's on and you fancy watching it, I, I don't think it will make you as angry as the second one will, because that one was just bizarre. It was just shit. Yeah, I mean, see, what, what I th- what I think happened is is that Ridley Scott wanted to do some sort of historical epic set in medieval times, because he did the Kingdom of Heaven, but that's met set in bit of medieval Europe and then mostly medieval Middle East, right? Yeah. And 
the the one thing that 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 they seem to put a lot a lot of effort into this film is that all the all the sets and villages and costumes and and period detail is great. And I think Ridley Scott wanted to do a, a, a film set in medieval England, and I don't think he was getting the help from the studio to do uh, you know a story of the Hundred Years' War or the story of the War of the Roses or whatever, right? They said, well, why don't you do Robin Hood? That's set in medieval times. And everyone likes Robin Hood. And I think it was one of those classic Ridley Scott compromises where he said, okay. But as you say, I don't think his heart was in it because it doesn't look like this was the film he really wanted to make. I don't think he wanted to make a Robin Hood film. Yeah, it, I don't know why they made it because you could just tell nobody was properly interested in it. They didn't have a proper story because Robin Hood's a kind of classic story that everyone knows, especially in Britain. Yeah. Um, and maybe across yeah, I mean, the world, but um, the, the central bit was all right if they'd actually gone with that. But there's too much happening. There's a guy from France who's trying to wrest the throne from King John. There's about forty minutes at the beginning of Richard the Lionheart is trying to to win back the crown of France. He's besieging a <laughs> castle somewhere and dies. So as you can get back to England until forty five minutes in, and then you got all these other storylines. If they'd forgotten about that and done the bit where Robin. You know, Longstride is a commoner from the war who, for plot reasons, ends up um, taking on the identity of you know the, the nobleman of Loxley, yeah, and is yeah. somewhat at odds with the sheriff and the stuff that's going on. You hardly see the sheriff. I don't know what William Hurt's there for, but that central storyline. All right, that's a slightly different version of Robin Hood. He's not even Robin of Loxley, right? He's a bloke who's taken on that identity because he's nobody, but that identity's the right thing for him at the right time yep there you go that's a way into the story but they just yeah. i don't think i don't think as you say i don't think anyone was that bothered and then they all get involved in magna carta and then magna carta doesn't get signed and gets burned by king john and you any fucking kid over the age of 10 can pick up a history book that tells them that didn't happen <laughs> i just what the fuck man yeah, um, so i i think right when when ridley scott wanted to do a medieval film and he couldn't get the funding. I don't know if he wanted to do 100 Years' War or War of the Roses or anything like that, and he couldn't get that. I think he would have been better off taking a classic adventure novel that he could play around with, like Robert Louis Stevenson's Black Arrow or Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, and just have a crack at something different. But, you know, that would have worked. Or, or just dig his heels in and make a historical epic. Do you know what I mean? Make a historical drama about something that actually happened. Yeah. Rather than this compromise, but it's just one of those things. It's sometimes Ridley Scott does this. He he sets out on the wrong path from the beginning, and he's not good enough to fix that problem because no one is, you know. Yeah, it was a shame, but it's not as terrible as the the, the second oh, part. Fucking hell! I hated yeah. this film from the first minute, from that initial voiceover. I already hated this film. It it was awful. This. See, Taron Edgerton, I mean, he's likable in some things that I've seen him, but he's not likable here. I mean, this is, I mean, the only person they could have made more irritating is if they'd got James Corden to play Robin Hood. Imagine. He plays a really irritating character right from the beginning. And it's one of those things, right? The guy who directed this is one of the directors that works on episodes of um, Peaky Blinders. Um, but what I would say is he's not the one writing and producing and kind of setting the, the tone for Peaky Blinders. So someone else is the one in control of how anachronistic it is. Do you know what I mean? In terms of music mm -hmm. and how much the f they take liberties with what was realistic in 1925 or whatever, right? This guy, Otto Bassers, is just throwing shit at the screen from the beginning. So you get um, someone sticks a, a sends him a letter saying draft notice. And he gets he gets conscripted to go to the crusades. What the fuck is that? 
that looks like something a child would do. Yeah. It looks like <laughs> it looks like they got their child in Photoshop to come up with a big letter saying draft notice, and he goes, "Oh, I've got to go off to the Crusades." Really? That's it. And then yeah. when they get to the Crusades, it it's out. They were trying to do like a medieval version of the fucking Hurt Locker. They were having like shootouts with bows and arrows. What the fuck is going on? Yeah, it wasn't great, was it? I mean, the problem with the with Ridley Scott's Robin Hood is there isn't enough bow bow and arrow action. This has just got far too much. They're having like shootouts that might as well be with machine guns except they're with arrows and they're, they all look they all look like they're wearing kind of seal team six middle east fighting gear out in the crusades so that's all shite they call robin hood rob that can fuck off yeah <laughs> and and then essentially the same it's basically the same storyline as robin hood prince of thebes but worse with a CGI version of Nottingham that looks like it's something out of Middle Earth, right? Do you know what Nottingham looks like in, in this film? That giant CGI kind of some somehow industrial, even though it's 12, 15, right? Yeah. That's not a time, that's a year, right? And the population of Nottingham that time was about 5,000, but apparently they've got this giant industrial city on the side of a fucking hill, and that's Nottingham in the Middle Ages, is it? Jamie Foxx is just a shit Morgan Freeman. Yeah, basically they've just they've gone. Oh, look at this cast; they'll fix it themselves. And you know, there's some there's some real talent there. You know, Taron Egerton one got a Golden Globe for playing Elton John. Jamie Foxx is an Oscar winner. Ben Mendelsohn ben is Mendelsohn's a good actor. Really good. Um, and it's just yeah. shit. The, the thing is, right? They've they don't make any effort. Like the whole the whole thing, Robin Hood, right? Stealing from the rich to give to the poor. There's obviously a modern kind of application of that story. Do you know what I mean? You didn't have democracy and a welfare state in the Middle Ages, did you, right? But modern audiences watching that would what would make Robin Hood the hero because he is, you know, uh, uh, putting right some injustice. In this, they just go, Jamie Foxx turns up and says, oh, the world's really unfair. You've got these powerful people oppressing lo- uh, you know, local people and starting wars around the world. And it's like, so I've, I've come to start a revolu- revolution in England. It's like, hey, how does a bloke from fucking, you know, Saladin's Arabian world um, – have that global worldview. Is that a thing? Do they have the internet back then where he had news stories about, about what the political systems are around the world? He's yeah. come to start a revolution with, and, and, he, and he makes this speech, which essentially didn't become mainstream in world politics until 1950. And everyone just looks at him and goes, yeah, okay, let's do that. Really? Really? That's that's what fucking, it, it'd make no effort for any of it to be remotely realistic. The Sheriff of Nottingham is apparently Nigel Farage in a leather trench coat. <laughs> You know, making speeches about oh, the 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 the, um, the Muslims are going to come over here. No, that's what what the Crusades were about. The Crusades were about taking Jerusalem, and now they've just invented this. And it's and oh, apparently that all of the Crusades are controlled from Nottingham. Apparently, you change the course of the Crusades and political systems across Europe, and where all the money is going, and what the Catholic Church is interested in, by controlling the local government of the eleventh biggest city in England. Why is this all fucking happening in Nottingham? It's just like, oh, it's just, it's so, it's so lazy that you just get angry watching it. You know, the acting is just Taron Edgerton, Jamie Foxx shouting at each other. And you know that they're better actors than that, but they just kind of, it's just loud, noisy and stupid for like fucking two hours, you know? Um, yeah, it was just stupid. And then you've got these, these weird, like these weird kind of anachronisms. It's just... It's just shit. It's just people using these fucking semi-automatic crossbows that are just, you know, lethal, which didn't exist in the 1200s. Yeah, he flies through the air firing his bow like he's a fucking superhero. He runs a horse through a thick wooden wooden door. Did you see that? Yep, it's ridiculous. It's just fuck? That horse is going to have a concussion. 
real. It was a real shame because uh, they're crying out for a really good. Um, I mean, Robin if, if you could, the thing is, if you other people have done reasonably successful Robin Hood series, the BBC did one which is quite popular. I didn't watch it, but I hear it was okay on the BBC. You can do, still do Robin Hood shows, but it's just like you've got to have a bit more imagination than this, you know. And the, it's just so lazy. There's one bit where Maid Marian comes in and says, "Oh, we disagree with the way you do things, Sheriff. We believe in a more just and fair world." It's not even. What knowing that the sheriff of Nottingham is the bad guy and you're about to rob his, his castle, you go up to him and, and 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 identify yourself. Just fucking try, just fucking try and do the story in some sort of believable way. But it's just fucking hell. I mean, the dialogue was so anachronistic. Someone at one point says, "I want to go big." So who the fuck says I want to go big in 13th century England? It's just endlessly, endlessly, endlessly shit. Yeah. It's like, and it's all the running around firing the arrows. There isn't, there's hardly a single sword fight in this film. Jamie Foxx, because of what they've done with the character, is actually just sitting at the back telling Robin Hood what to do. And it's like, Arthur from Peaky Blinders turns up playing Arthur from Peaky Blinders because that appears to be all he can do. They send a cardinal from Rome to check on up, by which time I'm just going, what the fuck is this? This is just insane, but not in a good way. It's like they gave Legolas from Lord of the Rings his own film and Legolas was a bellend. <laughs> Yeah. The musical score just doesn't stop. It's like fucking hitting you over the head with musical cues every two seconds. Um, they basically tried to turn him into a superhero with a secret identity. So he walks around as Robin of Loxley and he looks you know, totally unlike Robin Hood. And then, you know, by night with his mask on, with his hood on, he's Robin Hood. And, oh, and they, they, there was even a crap speech about who is the real person and who is the disguise. It's just like, fucking hell. And and then there's a wanted poster of Robin Hood at the end, which looks like the 13th century had inkjet printers. It just every single second, every single thing about this film was just terrible. Yeah, every, every creative choice like when they try and do things that are a little bit different. Yeah, it was just creative choices that didn't make sense and just didn't work. Unfortunately, I mean, about an hour in, Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe were not looking too bad. I mean, I watched these films back to back, and I was pining for the, you know. The only thing wrong with like the Russell, you know, the Robin Hood film is that no one was really putting quite enough effort in at the Robin Hood stuff, and he only becomes Robin Hood with two minutes to go, and it's just like, oh, this is just like, on this is this is aggressively shit. This was going out of its way to be shit, and the fact that they thought this was going to be a hit, it's just, it's a it's a mystery on on the along the lines of the Guy Ritchie King Arthur film, you know. Yeah, that to be honest, that King Arthur film wasn't too bad. The one back in two thousand and four, it, it tried something kind of different, and it, I quite enjoyed that film when it came out. But this was, mm. it tried to kind of stay, it kind of tried to say periodical. If you know what I mean, it tried to stay in that era. But as this mm. thing couldn't make its mind up, where it's all industrial, fucking nearly fully automatic crossbows and stuff, and yeah, it was just shit. I mean, they had fucking coal-fired power stations in the centre of Nottingham. It's like. Fucking hell. And you could see it, it, honestly, you could see it was some guy who they got to do a couple of episodes of Peaky Blinders, but they didn't let him do anything ambitious like write the story and come up with the ideas. And let loose with, with you know, with, with money and ideas, he he shouldn't be allowed to do it again. Yeah. It's a really horrible shit film. I kind of blocked it out of my memory. I got really distracted watching this film. I couldn't be arsed watching it. I just, yeah, it was shit. It's a shame as well. It's just everything. It's just like I've, you know, the costumes are irritating. The dialogue is irritating. The way it looks is irritating. The way they use the weapons is irritating. It's just like, oh, fuck off. 
We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation. This month, we're going to talk about representation in film, in particular, colorblind casting and casting for minority characters. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of the Double Reel Film Podcast. The episode was recorded and edited with the help of Anchor FM, Audacity, and Zencaster. Anything that sounded good was down to them, and anything that sounded crap was down to us, or Zencaster. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin McLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Looking forward to joining you for another helping of nerdy chat in just a minute. See you on the other side. Fucking roasting, by the way. Holy shit. Yeah, it's hot here as well. It is warm.